You're listening to the sermon audio from the Shore Church located in North Vancouver. For more information about the Shore, upcoming events, or to donate, you can head to www.theshorechurch.ca. Let me invite BJ up on stage once again. Ryan already prayed for you, so I got nothing to do. We can always pray again, but uh, you guys remember BJ. BJ and I worked, uh, well, fellowship together, I guess, at Westside for a while. You interned there for a bit and uh, leads a ministry in Coquitlam and uh, has given his time to come and give me a little bit of a break from preaching. So I just want to thank BJ for that publicly, but I yeah, appreciate you, brother, and, and it's always good to see you. Let me pray for you. Uh, Jesus, once again, we come before you um, as Lord and Savior, and and I thank you that uh, we get to stand behind your word and proclaim it, and I pray, Jesus, that you'll use BJ uh, in a mighty way this morning, that you'll fill him with your spirit and and guide his words, guide his thoughts, and uh, just open up, as he opens up your word, Lord, let it do the teaching. And so I just pray that we, as we listen and hear, uh, that we will surrender, uh, that we will receive the goodness of uh, your rest and your comfort. And uh, just pray, Jesus, that you'll continue to mold our hearts to become more like you. In Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. Awesome. Thank you, Jer. Am I on? Am I on? Can you hear? Hey, good morning. Good morning, everyone. Good to be back. I was here in April of this year, and it was... At an amazing time, and I was very grateful for the opportunity to come back and to share the word with you guys this morning. We're going to start by reading our passage. If you have your Bible, uh, hopefully it's open up to the Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 1 to 11. And uh, I'm actually going to invite you to stand with me as we read out the word of God. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, reads like this. Therefore... While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. This is the word of God. Go ahead and grab a seat. Now I'm going to ask four questions about our passage in Hebrews here this morning, and these questions will serve as our outline for the message. Let me give them to you up front so you have an idea of where we're going, and then we'll answer them one at a time. Question number one, what exactly is this thing called God's rest the author is talking about here in Hebrews chapter four? 
We need to nail this down because it's what the whole text is about. Number two, how does a person enter into God's rest if that's something they end up wanting to do after they hear and learn about what it is? Question number three, what are we being warned about in this passage concerning this rest? Because in verse one, it says there's something that we should be afraid of. And then number, question number four, how do striving and resting coexist? How do they relate to each other? Because verse 11 says, strive to enter the rest. And striving doesn't sound very restful to me, so we'll take a look at how striving and resting fit together. So here's question number one we're going to take a look at. What exactly is this thing called God's rest that the author is talking about all throughout the first 11 verses of Hebrews chapter 4? We need to nail this down because entering this rest is the main theme of the entire text. It comes up over and over again. Now what pops into your mind when you think of rest? When I think of rest, I remember back to an experience that I had on more than one occasion, being in high school, at home, on the weekend, plopped on the couch, TV on in the background, and this painting show would come on with a guy named Bob Ross. Show of hands, anyone know who Bob Ross is? Okay, you know where I'm going with this. Whenever Bob Ross started speaking, I was powerless over the sound of his voice. It had to be, it had to be the most serene and gentle and peaceful voice known to the history of mankind. And anytime I heard his voice, I fell asleep within minutes, if not seconds. And when I woke up a couple hours later, with one of those sweet naps with drool all over the pillow, I felt supreme rest. That's one of the things that comes into my mind when I think about rest. But what about you? Maybe you're a parent of young kids, and for you it's almost impossible for you to think about rest because your life is just bonkers all of the time. But every once in a while, maybe when grandma and grandpa are in town, they take the kids out of the house for an afternoon, and when they do, you look around the house and you listen, and there's nothing, not a sound, not a peep, and you make yourself a coffee, and you draw yourself a bath, and you just lie there in sweet silence. Rest, glorious parental rest. Those are just a couple examples of rest. But is that the kind of rest the author of Hebrews is talking about when he writes about this thing called God's rest? Is the rest of God like taking a nap when listening to Bob Ross speak, but only in an infinitely more soothing way? Is God's rest like soaking in the bathtub in a quiet, child-free home, but somehow infinitely more quiet and serene? As restful as those things are, God's rest is so much better than that. Let's take a look at what the writer of Hebrews has to say about this rest of God because he shines some light on the subject for us. And he does this by taking us on a tour through the Old Testament. He connects this thing called God's rest to Israel entering the promised land. He connects God's rest to one of the Psalms written by King David. He also connects God's rest to the six days of creation. We'll look at each of these connections and see how they all contribute something to our understanding of this reality the author calls God's rest. God's rest is not the promised land, but it's something like it. The promised land serves as a foreshadow of this rest of God. The promised land, it was a rest of God's people in a very real sense. 
God promised the Israelites that they would inherit the land of Canaan, and he made this promise originally to their forefathers, the patriarchs, hundreds of years before they took possession of the land. And the author of Hebrews calls the promised land God's rest. We can see this in our text from last week. In Hebrews chapter 3, verses 16 to 19, it says, For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, speaking of the promised land, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter the promised land because of unbelief. Now compared to the 400 years the people of God spent in Egypt and the next 40 years they spent wandering around in the wilderness, the promised land was a destination characterized by rest. It was known as a land flowing with milk and honey. It was full of abundant provision for those who dwelled in that land. Those who lived there could put down their roots, build families, enjoy God's good creation and his blessing over their entire lives. It was to be a truly restful existence if they were able to take possession of it. There was only one problem. God said that a whole generation of Israelites wouldn't get to enter it. And why? Because that generation refused to believe the promise God made to them and to their forefathers. And because they refused to believe God, they died in the wilderness, and the next generation was able to go into Canaan. So the promised land was a very real rest that God was inviting his people to come into. But the promised land is not the rest the author of Hebrews is ultimately talking about in chapter 4. Now, how do we know that? Because of what he says in verses 6 to 8 of our text. In verse 6 he says, Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, speaking of God's rest, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, Today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now here it is in verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. After the second generation of Israelites left the wilderness and entered the promised land through Jacob, God still spoke of another rest, even though they had just entered their rest. They came into the rest of the promised land, and then God said through David about 400 years later, hey guys, there's still another rest that you need to enter. So the promised land serves as an example of a future rest that is still to come. The promised land is a type of rest that foreshadows a better rest yet to come. There's a promise extended to people from God that leads to something better than the promised land. He promises us an even better rest than that of Canaan. So we see in chapter 4, the author connects God's rest to the promised land, but he also connects it to the flow of God's work in creation and the rest that he entered into after he was done. Chapter 4, verse 4 of Hebrews says this, For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And then down in verse 9, it says, So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. God worked for six days when he created the entire universe. And then he retired on the seventh day, so to speak. After the six days were done, God's work in creation was done. And he has been resting ever since. 
He didn't go back to work on the eighth day. For God, there's not a cycle of a six-day work week followed by a one-day Sabbath day off and then another six-day work week followed by another day off and on and on and on and on. God worked six days and then he was done. He began to rest. And so in this thing called God's rest, we are to understand that there's an absence of a type of work. God's not working in this rest. There's no work to be done in this rest. And this gives us another clue as to what this rest of God is. A particular kind of labor is not present in this realm of rest. God's not working in it, and neither are those who enter into this rest with him. God's rest is a better promise than Canaan was, and there's no work to be done in it. And the author of Hebrews isn't done. He quotes David writing in Psalm 95, and he quotes this part of Psalm of this psalm three times in two chapters, that this rest is available for people to enter into today. In Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 and 15, and then in chapter 4, verse 7, he says, saying through David so long afterward, and the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. God's rest is a glorious reality that is promised to us, it is a work-free zone, and, it is, uh, and this rest is available for people to enter into today. Now, I think some of the pieces of this puzzle are coming together, but it feels a bit like a riddle that still needs to be solved. What promise has God made to us that's better than the promised land? A promise that we don't have to work for, and a promise that we can enter into today. The answer is life in Jesus Christ. The glory of the reality of Jesus Christ is the whole point of the book of Hebrews. And the author is staying true to this theme when he's talking about this thing called God's rest. Coming into a relationship with Jesus is what entering God's rest is all about. When we come to Christ, we are entering a particular realm, so to speak. We were outside of Christ before we came to him, and being outside of Jesus can be characterized as a restless experience. But after we come to him, we are now in him. This phrase, in him or in Christ, is used all throughout the pages of the New Testament. Someone who is in Christ has entered into the rest of Hebrews 4. The author of Hebrews the author of Hebrews uses the phrase in Christ from your guys' text from last week. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 to 14 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Here it is in verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Again, being positionally in Christ is what it means to have come into God's rest. Being in Christ is the fulfillment of the greater promise God makes to people. He promised the Israelites the promised land of Canaan, but he promised people of every tribe, nation, and tongue that a Savior would bring them into a saving relationship with God. Being in Christ is the fulfillment of what David spoke when he associated God's rest within the time frame of today. 
If you hear God's voice speaking to the depths of your heart, revealing Jesus to you, act upon that revelation today. There may not be a tomorrow to respond. You can come to God through faith in Jesus Christ today. Being in Christ is the fulfillment of the Sabbath rest of God. Christ is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament ceremonial laws. That means Christians don't observe only one day a week as holy. Instead, we come to the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus Christ. And when we do, we honor and revere him every day of the week. And we do no, and we do no work, no work, to earn our place in him. There's nothing we could ever do to earn what God wants to freely give us by grace in his Son. Jesus did all the work for us, so there is no work that we could possibly contribute to our salvation. He went to the cross for us. He died in our place. He took on the wrath of God that our sins deserved. He went into the grave. He conquered death by coming out of it. He did it all. We did nothing. So when we come to Christ, we come into a work-free zone, a Sabbath, so to speak. The work is finished. All we need to do is take him at his word, receiving what he wants to give to us, his rest. I think this is what Jesus was inviting us into when he spoke his words in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This rest that Jesus offers us is a soul rest. Jesus says you're tired from working so hard trying to be a good enough person that people would accept you. You want to be loved. You want to be known. You want to be in relationship with others. But you think that you have to perform up to a certain standard in order to get people to like you and accept you. You think to yourself that maybe if you worked hard enough on your physical appearance, then people would love you. Maybe if you worked hard enough on pleasing people and making everyone happy with you all the time, maybe then they would love you. Maybe then. Maybe if you worked hard enough at becoming successful. Maybe if you worked hard enough at being funny or cool enough or nice enough or religious enough. Maybe if you did just a little bit more, maybe then you'd be worthy of receiving love. You think to yourself, if I just worked harder, maybe then God might love me. But Jesus says that is an exhausting way to live. Working overtime to try to earn people's acceptance, to even try to earn God's acceptance. And if that's you, I hope you can hear Jesus saying to you right now, I know you're tired. <laughs> it's okay, you can stop working. You can stop trying so hard. I know everything about you. I know the good stuff. And I know all the secret stuff that you're ashamed of and scared of people finding out about. I know all the worst parts about you. And I love you anyways. And I will accept you. So just come to me and rest in the perfect love that I have for you. People in Jesus' day work themselves to the bone. 
And I'm not talking about physical work, although I'm sure they did that too. I'm talking about spiritual work. They tried to live under the crushing weight of the Old Testament law. They worked so hard at trying to earn God's favor by obeying every single command written in the Torah. But who could ever do that? Who could ever live up to that perfect standard of righteousness perfectly 100% of the time? Yeah, no one could. So there was a constant weight of shame and judgment looming over people when they inevitably failed at obeying the law, and that was anything but restful. It was so spiritually tiring trying to be perfect when it's an impossible standard to achieve. Now, there's a spiritual soul rest that can be experienced in a real and tangible way by those who accept Jesus' offer to come to him. Once we come to him, once we are in the rest of God that's found in Christ, then we can know what real rest is all about. What's this rest like if it has nothing to do with Bob Ross or a quiet bath time? Well, in the first chapter in his letter to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul lays out several incredible realities that belong to the person who is resting in Jesus He goes to great lengths to explain what blessings belong to those who are in Christ. I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. It should be on the screen. And as I do, keep your ears and eyes open for every time Paul says our phrase, in Christ or in him. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us In Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. In verse 3 of Ephesians 1, Paul says that those who are in Christ have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Think about that statement just for a second. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. If you are in Christ, then God has downloaded into your life absolutely everything you need for life and godliness. You don't have to ask him for these blessings. According to Paul, God's already blessed you with all of them, every single one. And how is that restful? You have everything you need. That means you don't have to strive to acquire any of those resources. 
In verse 4, those who are in Christ have been chosen by God. If you are in Christ, you don't have to work to get God to pay attention to you. He had his eyes on you before the universe came into being. And that is when he chose you. He hand-selected you. Do you know what you can do with information like that? You can rest in the love that God has for you. In verses 5 to 6, those in Christ have been adopted by God into his family. God didn't choose you to become a servant of his. He chose you to become a son. He chose you to become a daughter. He wanted you to be a part of his family. How restful is that? Do you ever notice how little kids don't worry about bills getting paid or where groceries come from? They don't sweat those details because they know mom and dad take care of those things. And if we've been adopted into God's family, then we are his kids, and we do not have to worry about our dad taking care of us. That's something that you and I can rest in. In verses 7 to 10, those in Christ have been purchased by God. We've been redeemed and have had God's forgiveness lavished upon us. Lavished. Not like turning the tap on a tiny little bit and little drops of forgiveness come out. Like Niagara Falls, forget, lavished on you. If you are in Christ, the amount of forgiveness that you've received from God outweighs any and all of the sin that you've accumulated in your life. God has lavished his forgiveness upon those who are in Jesus. Do you know what's spiritually tiring? Having the weight of our sin constantly bearing down on our souls. Do you know what's spiritually restful? having all that sin taken off of our life. A trillion pounds of spiritual weight removed from off of our backs. And now we can breathe. Now we can rest in Christ. In verses 11 to 12, those in Christ have obtained an inheritance. God is now the father of those who are in Christ. Do you know how rich God is? Do you know what his financial portfolio looks like? Everything, literally, everything belongs to him. It's all his. And do you know how inheritances work? All that belongs to our dad will belong to us one day too. We don't have that stuff in our hands right now, but it's only a matter of time. We might look poor right now, some of us. But there is no one richer than the person who is in Christ because all that belongs to our Father will be able to be enjoyed by us one day too. So rest in that when you're hungry or when it's hard to get the bills paid each month. These hard times will come to an end and then we will live like royalty forever and ever and ever. That rich life to come will never end. Rest in that. Verses 13 to 14 of Ephesians 1, those in Christ have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. When we are in Christ, Christ comes to live in us. And the greatest reality that can be experienced in this life is ours, the presence of God with us and in us. The Holy Spirit seals us and Christ begins to live his life in us and through us. The Prince of Peace makes his home in us. The Prince of Peace. How much more restful can you get than having peace personified living in you? 
So what's this rest that the author of Hebrews desperately wants us to know about? God's rest is the reality that can be experienced once we come to God through faith in Jesus Christ. When we are in Christ, we are in the special rest of God. So if that sounds good to someone here who's maybe not in Christ yet, they might ask the second question of ours, how does someone enter into God's rest? Well, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 2 to 3 tells us, For good news came to us just as to them, speaking of the Israelites back in the wilderness, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Verse 3, For we who have believed enter that rest. We don't work to get into this promised rest. We don't clean ourselves up first before we come to God. There's no amount of money we can pay to enter His rest. There's no amount of good works we can do to merit entrance into His rest. We simply believe upon Jesus that He did everything for us that we needed to be done in order for us to come in. This is the best news because this means that literally anybody can enter the rest of God. No matter a person's background, no matter their history, no matter their income, no matter their criminal record, no matter the idols they've been worshiping, no matter nothing, anybody and everybody can believe upon Jesus and enter his rest. It's called grace. God gave us this invitation to enter his rest as a promise. He gave it to us as a gift. All that's left for us to do is take him at his word and enter in. How? Well, believe what God says to you about your sin, namely that you have sinned, and your sin is far worse than you think it is. Your sin is so bad that if God administered perfect justice to you, he would sentence you to hell forever, where you would pay the price of your sin against a holy and righteous God for eternity. That's how bad it is. We'd have to take an eternity to pay it off. You need to believe that about your sin in order to enter God's rest. Because then and only then can you believe what God has done to provide you salvation. You need to believe in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That what Christ did on the cross and in his coming to life after death was enough to pay for your sins. And then just come to him in faith and receive his gift. You turn from your sin and you turn to him. You lay down your life and you follow Jesus instead. Do this, and you will experience the rest of God because you will be placed in Christ. You will experience the soul rest that Jesus invites us to have. I read it once before. I'm going to read it once again. It's so nice. You've got to say it twice. Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 to 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Sins removed. Our soul washed clean, made spiritually alive, become friends with God, accepted into the kingdom. No need to worry about anything anymore. No need to fear anything anymore. No need to toil and strive and work to be loved and accepted anymore because Jesus loves you and he has given you rest in him. Brings us to the third question I'm asking about our text is 
What are we being warned about in this passage? Well, the warning is that we don't miss out on entering this beautiful rest that is found only in Jesus. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us, and the author's including himself in this, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Now, if we're going to grasp the significance of what this warning means for us today, it's very important that we understand who this letter was being addressed to originally. The author is writing to believers and those who profess to be believers in Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews is talking to and warning Jewish believers in the first century. That's why he's using examples Jews would be very familiar with, examples from the Old Testament. He reminded them that the Israelites in the wilderness did not enter the promised land even though they were a part of God's people, even though they had witnessed the ten plagues in Egypt, even though they had passed through the Red Sea on dry ground, even though they saw God manifest His glorious presence on Mount Sinai, even though they were personally led by God in the wilderness by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by, uh, sorry, pillar of fire by night, even though they received the commands of God through Moses, even though they received the manna and the quail and the water, even though they experienced God in all these ways, they still did not believe him and his promise that he would bring them into the promised land. Instead, they grumbled against him, and they did not believe he could bring them into the promised land. Why? Because there was giants living there, apparently. They were called the people of God, but some of them weren't a part of God's people because God's people believe God. We trust him. We take him at his word. That's what marks us. The Bible says that the righteous will live by faith, and the Israelites in the wilderness did not exercise faith in God. The author of Hebrews reminded the recipients of his letter he is very concerned for some of them. They were a group of Christians and he was worried that some of them weren't actually Christians. Even though all of them heard the gospel, heard about Jesus' miracles, maybe even experienced the power of Jesus through the working of the apostles, maybe experienced the power of the Holy Spirit, and the author of Hebrews is worried that some of them haven't yet entered into the rest of Jesus. He was worried that some of them who called themselves Christians weren't actually Christians. He was worried that some of them who thought they were saved weren't actually saved. He told them to be afraid of this very real possibility. Now the Bible calls us as believers to test ourselves to see if we are in Christ or that, or that if Christ is in us. The Apostle Paul wrote this to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? And in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addressed this idea that there are those who claim to be his followers, but they actually aren't. And he warns us that he will have some very sobering words for those who think they belong to him, but when they don't. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 21, this is Jesus speaking. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. 
On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus will say to some people who thought they were Christians, you thought you were good because you did a lot of good things in my name, but you never believed in me. You never trusted in me. You thought you were good because of what you had done, but you didn't come to me to be made good because of what, I, what I've done for you. You never believed in me. You never entered my rest. There are some people in churches just like this one who have attended church for decades, who own a Bible, maybe multiple Bibles, who give a portion of their income to the church, who serve in ministry and say the right things, but who are not in Christ because they have never trusted in the finished work of Jesus on their behalf. They have a dead religion. They don't have a relationship with the living God. This is what the author of Hebrews was warning his audience about in this letter to them 2,000 years ago, and that same warning is going out into this room today. Have you believed in Jesus alone as the only reason that you're going to heaven? If you're coming to the realization that you haven't trusted in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, then I have some good, good news for you, and I'll borrow words from our text in Hebrews Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. If, you hear, if you're hearing God speak to you personally this morning, respond to him in faith and turn your life over to him right now if you need to. This brings us to our fourth and final question of this te text. How do striving and resting relate to each other? With all this talk about rest... Our passage ends in an interesting way. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11. The author says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Now, does this sound just a little bit contradictory to any of you? Striving to enter rest? Doesn't striving sound a lot like working? And I thought we just established that we don't work to enter God's rest. So how do we make sense of this striving talk here in verse 11? Let's see if we can figure this out together. So to recap, how do we enter God's rest? By believing God. Now, does God consider our belief in him to be meritorious work? In other words, does God look at our belief in him and say, well, they've believed enough to earn their way into my presence? No, because in the Bible, believing is the opposite of work. Jesus said as much. When a crowd came to him asking him what work they should do to get into God's good books, what did Jesus say? John chapter 6, verse 29. Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And in saying this, Jesus pitted faith against works. He made it clear that you can't work your way into heaven. You can only believe your way there. Belief is the work, and it's not actually considered work by God. Belief is not work. But, but, it is possible for us to work at growing, strengthening, deepening our ability to believe God, to get better at believing whatever he says, whenever he says it. 
I hope this doesn't confuse anyone because it's very important that we get this. We can and ought to strive to grow our belief in Jesus. Strive to grow in faith. Work at it. Work at getting good at trusting God's promises. Pour blood, sweat, and tears into it if necessary. God gives us grace to believe in him, and that grace is opposed to earning his favor, but that grace is not opposed to us applying effort in the walking out of our faith. We need to give ourselves to growing our faith as followers of Jesus. We need to strive for it, as the author of Hebrews says. Why? Because I'm going to give you there's two reasons why. Very important. Number one, we need to strive to grow our faith because our ability to believe in God won't grow on its own by accident. Here's an illustration for you. What happens if you place a ball halfway up a 45-degree hill and then take your hands off the ball? What happens to the ball? Not a trick question. Rolls down the hill, right? What happens if you apply some force to the ball into the direction towards the top of the hill? It'll move up that way. We are the ball. The hill is this world we live in. A more mature faith in Jesus is found higher up the hill. And the force applied to the ball is the effort we exert in growing our faith. If you don't strive at growing in belief, you will naturally roll down the hill towards unbelief and disobedience, which is the very thing the author of Hebrews has warned us against. But if we strive to apply God's grace in our life by putting in effort to know him more, trust him more, love him more, and obey him more, then, that, then at the end of our life, we will look back where we started and we will realize just how much faith we've grown in. We'll have a good vantage point of where we came from higher up the hill. I feel compelled to hit this point home because the author of Hebrews is making a big deal out of it. If you became a Christian 10 years ago and you've done nothing to grow your faith in Jesus since then, after 10 years have passed, you won't be a more mature Christian today than you were back then just because you've called yourself a Christian for the last 10 years. If you've done nothing to nurture and grow your faith in God, you'll be less mature in your faith today than you were when you started 10 years ago. If all we do as Christians is come to church for two hours once a week, and the other 166 hours in the week are all Christ-less, then we will be rolling down the hill into unbelief. We're not going to grow in faithfulness by accident. We cannot stumble and fall into spiritual maturity. We must work at it like the scriptures say. The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2 says, Therefore, my beloved... As you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now here's some great news. God is at work in you, believer, sanctifying you. But he's not going to puppeteer you against your will. He expects you to join him in that work. He calls you to work out your own salvation with the grace that he provides you with fear and trembling. So strive for it. Now how can we strive to grow in our faith? Well, answer, the things that the elders of every church are always harping on everyone to do all the time. Consistent practice of spiritual disciplines of reading and studying the word of God on your own when no one else is watching. Personal prayer time with your maker. 
biblical fellowship with other believers where we can exhort one another towards faith and godliness. Bible, prayer, and fellowship over and over again and over again and over again. Why? Regular practice of these things is what God uses to grow your faith in Him. So that's the first reason we have to strive to build up our faith. Here's the second reason. We need to strive in growing our faith as followers of Jesus because the faith we exhibit at the end of our life will be the evidence we are in fact in Christ today or not. The faith we exhibit at the beginning of our following Jesus will not be what counts. And I just take this from a passage from last week's study, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14. The author says, For we have come to share in Christ... If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. It's not how we start our journey following Jesus that will count. It's how we end that journey that will determine if we are in him. How will we know who has entered into the rest of God? The one who has rested in him will still be resting in him at the very end of their life. And so then, the author implores the original recipients of his letter, and he implores us to strive to enter the rest of God. You only enter God's rest by faith, so then, strive to grow your faith in God. I'm going to wrap up, maybe invite the worship team to come up after. Jesus is the rest of God that all of us need, and he is the rest that God promises us and invites us into. You can't earn your way into this rest. If you want to enter it, you can enter it today. You can find rest for your soul in Jesus. This rest begins the moment you believe in him, and it continues on throughout all eternity. And as good as this rest is in him now, it will get even better. Because the day is coming when Jesus is going to dissolve the heavens and the earth. And he's going to make a new heavens and a new earth ones that are free from the stain of sin, and he's going to give us resurrection bodies to boot. And Satan will be put in hell forever, no longer able to tempt anyone to disbelieve the promises and goodness of God. In that day, it will be righteousness only, kindness only, love only, joy only, and peace only, all of these in infinite and perfect quantities and qualities. In that day, we will experience the perfect rest of God in Jesus Christ, and we will experience it forever and ever and ever. Amen? Amen. Amen. Would you pray with me? Of Jesus, we worship you. We love you. We thank you. We want more of you. Thank you for your word, your living and abiding word. Thank you for the rest, Lord, that we have heard about here this morning. I pray, Lord, that you do whatever needs to be done in every single one of our lives individually. In the life of the Shore Church, collectively, do whatever you need to do to let us as people not just know about this rest of yours theoretically. Let us dive face first into it and stay there as long as possible, sitting in your grace enjoying your presence. Even as we stumble and fall and and make mistakes through this life, we can still know your rest in those moments because forgiveness is only a a thought away, a, a prayer away. 
I pray, Lord, that whatever is heard here that needs to be heard here this morning would find a home in in people's hearts. They'd be able to experience it and live it out in their life, not just in this week to come, but in the weeks and months and years to come. Do it, Lord. Do it, Jesus. We can't, but you can, and that's what we're asking you for, for us to do for us. Let us rest in you. I pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you.